Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Welcome back, I guess I should say. Welcome back, John Zipper, my co-host. We're here every Thursday afternoon during the lunch hour at the Commonwealth Club, and super grateful for this beautiful building and this beautiful day in San Francisco. We're glad you're here. You always bring great topics, great speakers. Did you miss me? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, right before the holiday break, we did have an amazing, amazing week. So if you haven't caught the program, we did this in uh, the first installment of the Equality Series. And we did it with Lauren Morelli, who's the producer of uh, the new Netflix Tales of the City. Um, But it's an incredible talk. We talked very little about Tales of the City and her other great program, Orange is the New Black. We talked more about you know, her passion to ensure that we tell authentic stories of the LGBTQ community by hiring LGBTQ actors, actresses, um, directors, showrunners, and all that. So make sure you catch it at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS if you didn't catch it. But today we have very special guests, and I got a chance to hear uh, this person speak as well as uh, just some chance um, meetings throughout the Pride celebration as they lead an organization that was recognized by the organization, um, San Francisco Pride, that is, and we'll, we'll get into that. It's going to be a very interesting conversation at this hour, um, most dramatic probably after Pride mm-hmm. for me. Um, But they lead an organization, and it's called API Equality, Northern California, but pronounced A-Pink. So let's welcome Executive Director Sammy Ablaza-Will. Sammy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you all. I kind of led into it, and it was like, yeah, it's going to be a dramatic hour. um, Ready for the drama. uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't, you know what, like, actually, it's not even, it's not even about drama, but it's these hard conversations that we need to be having in our community in order to really move us forward. Um, so before we move forward, though, let's go backwards, because it's tradition here on the program that you share a coming out story. Great. Uh, yeah, you know, I was trying to think about a coming out story all throughout this past week on my way here. And One of the things I've been reflecting on lately, actually, and talking to a lot of older activists and organizers is that, you know, I didn't have like a specific coming out moment. I wasn't, um, I I didn't have to like kind of gather my friends and family and go, I'm queer or gather my friends and family and go, I'm a non-binary trans person. I think for me, it was mostly coming out to myself uh, and then letting whatever followed, followed. And I remember growing up, Um, I grew up in a home with my mom, who's an immigrant from the Philippines. And growing up all the time, she would say things like, oh, like uh, those, like the gay Filipino men, the bakla men, they're just acting gay or they're like acting American so that they can cause drama. Filipino people, like we don't have that. That's they're pretending. So for my entire life, for, for a good portion of my life, at least I was like, oh, man, Okay, being gay is like a white American thing, and we don't have that. You just like try it on. And eventually, you know, I I learned otherwise, and I was able to see that there are plenty of Filipino queer folks out there in the world. Um, But I was kind of convinced that that was not me. I was convinced that, like, I'm going to be a strong ally. I'm going to show support for my friends. I'm going to be out here. Uh, And it wasn't really until the end of high school that I had um, a best friend, of course. And uh, that, we all have best friends. We all have best friends. <laughs> or a and, roommate. <laughs> yeah, a roommate, a pal, something like that. And uh, she came out to me. And I was really excited to support her uh, and really wanting to be in all of my allyship and 
one of the next things that she kind of showed me or told me is that she not only was queer or um, like bi identified, but she liked me. Mm. And I felt so conflicted as her best friend. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to make you sad. I don't, you know, I just don't like people like that. But I was like, I'm such a good ally and I don't want to be a bad friend. Maybe I'll just try it out. And um, we dated for two years. Wow. Uh, you, so you tried it out like I, your mom said, you know, it's kind of like, yeah. just try it. And just then put on a pair of pants. Pair of pants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and can I ask, did you tell your mom or did she know? No. Oh, my gosh. No. Uh, and I think it's it's really interesting because we dated a little bit in high school and people just kept saying things like, wow, you both are so close. Like, what best friends? You hang out all the time. Uh, and I think, yeah, that was just a really interesting thing to witness, um, how a lot of people, because I never said anything, were kind of willfully ignorant, even though all the signs were there. Uh, and it was only when I got to college that people gave me the option or they didn't um, assume right away. They were like, oh, like, what kinds of people are you into that I could say for myself? Oh, I guess anyone, you know, like any gender. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, I just am excited about people's energy and their vibe. And uh, I think coming into college and having people even just a few years older than me that were so confident in their gender and sexuality allowed me to feel a confidence in myself that I could not only um, be doing things that are queer, but to actually start identifying publicly as a queer person. Mm. And so uh, identifying as queer, you know, this is also something it can be considered new if you want to go through generations of the LGBTQ community. So when I came out, you know, my <laughs> generation, <laughs> I, I mean, being a lesbian was just such a, uh, you know, very clear identity and, and be, between lesbian and trans. Right. And I just, you know, queer is just, um, be, it's a reclaiming, but also, I think a much younger generation has reclaimed it as, as an identity, which is something new. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What about for you? I mean, was that, it, 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 was it new? Was it? Well, I think when I came into college, um, to me, I still heard queer as like, you know, the slur. Uh, and I didn't quite understand why people were self-identifying as queer, but it was through the explanation of friends saying, um, this is a tool or this is a word that people have used to hurt us, but we're reclaiming it to be fully in our power. Um, to them, queerness was just anything that was uh, out of the like norm, out of the heteronormative world. They were defining it for themselves. And I think for me, part of what was so hard in my own kind of coming out to myself journey is that none of the words available to me felt right. Uh, like lesbian didn't quite feel right. Bisexual didn't feel right. Uh, gay didn't feel right. You know, all of these different things felt like they didn't fit. And I questioned myself a ton. Like maybe I'm just a fake lesbian because I had this one person that I really like, but I'll never be into anyone again. Maybe I'm just faking it actually. Uh, but coming in and, and seeing people who were so confidently like I'm queer and I'm in my power, I'm reclaiming this word and this community for myself, my identity is actually one of opposition to homophobia, uh, was very empowering for me. And I think it was the only word that I found, especially in the beginning of my journey, that I felt empowered in. Wow. I'm going to use that quote now for every single person who asked me why I have Q in LGBTQ or why <laughs> we say queer when it was so bad. John. 
It, was your family religious at all? Was that a part of your mother's kind of outlook, or and did you, were you ever a religious person? Yeah, um, she was. She was a very religious person. Uh, she, like I said, she grew up in the Philippines, and so um, I guess either Catholic or Methodist. Yeah, yeah, she was definitely Catholic. She was definitely Catholic, coming from the northern region in the Philippines in Luzon. Um, she was very, very Catholic. And actually, when I was growing up for a good portion of my life, was attending mass regularly, was going to those things. My mom loves to tell a story about how when I was three, one of the first jobs I wanted to have was priest. <laughs> and um, they, they told me, oh, like uh, people who are assigned female at birth or people who are thought of to be girls, they can't be priests. And I was so mad. I was like, that's not fair. <laughs> like, I'm good at talking and I know scriptures. Uh, and I think, at, you know, from that point and, and just continuing on, uh, I think there was a time in my life in which I, I actually just started to get really critical about people telling me things um, and then just expecting me to believe it. And so I continued attending mass growing up. But to be honest, it was mostly for the donuts that they give out <laughs> afterwards. They always had chocolate donuts, and I was very into that. And um, I think it became a point of contention for my mom and I. She was very deeply religious, and I think attending mass was a, a, like a regular ritual for her. Uh, and at a certain point in my life, once I got into middle school, and especially high school, I didn't want to go, and I felt very conflicted about it. Uh, and it was a it was a big point of conflict and tension and pain, I think, to feel like me rejecting going to church was almost like rejecting her. Uh, and just generally, my relationship with my mom was very tumultuous with that being one of the factors. I actually think that uh, queerness and even my gender identity was not a part of the reason why uh, she and I had so many difficulties. We had plenty of problems before then. We couldn't even get to the queerness or the gender identity or anything like that. There was a whole bunch of other things that made our relationship difficult, um, including religion, including the way that I did or didn't want to practice the things that were important to her. And can I ask, how is your relationship with her now? Yeah, you know, it's not, it's, it's not very existent, yeah. to be honest. Uh, she actually moved out of the house when I was in high school. And I grew up in Las Vegas. And so um, when she moved out of the house, uh, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, are like, oh, wow, that must have been really challenging or that must have been hard. And no doubt it was, mm -hmm. right? I was maybe 15 or so. But I think for me, it was also an opportunity um, to feel like I could come home and be safe. She had a lot of things going on for her. And I think um, as, a, as a person growing into adulthood, I can see now like all of the trauma she experienced in her life as an um, immigrant woman from the Philippines who's coming here with practically nothing and having to struggle in a society that doesn't value her as a full human. She had a lot of things and a lot of pressures, and she externalized them onto me very often. Yeah. So when she decided to not be at the house, um, I think for me, I was like, cool, <laughs> like, I don't have to deal with her yelling at me yeah. or knocking on the door, telling me to come to church or coming home angry, upset, any of these other things. Um, and yeah, we actually haven't talked that much ex aside from a few text exchanges and things like that, maybe one or two times in person um, since the middle of high school. Let's move on to activism. Yeah. Um, I think for a lot of us in the LGBTQ community, sometimes, you know, it's a personal experience that sparks us to get involved or it's, you know, learning of all the injustices that our community faces. What was it for you, that, that moment where you're like, I'm, I'm throwing myself in it? Or have you always been in it? <laughs> I think that in 
a lot of ways, my heart has always been in it. Um, one of the things that I reflect on growing up is that, um, like walking on the street or seeing folks around, whenever I would see people struggling, like visibly on the street, um, when I was very young, I, I would cry. And my relatives, my mom, my titas, they would get upset and be like, why are you crying? Like, poor on the street, stop crying. But I'd be like, that person is hurting and no one is helping them. And when I was younger, people used to just tell me that I was too sensitive. But I think what I've learned in the time since then is that I'm just paying attention to the injustice that's happening around me. And I didn't have the words or the analysis to talk about like the homeless crisis or gentrification in that same way. Uh, but I think... I've been able to be attuned to just looking at what's around me and noticing that some people aren't be, being treated as well as others. Uh, I think a really concrete moment, though, is when I was in high school um, in Las Vegas, that we just didn't have a very great school system, to be honest. And I, I will always remember that the school district announced really big budget cuts, huge budget cuts, cutting, cutting all of these arts programs like orchestra, band, um, photography, basically anything that wasn't English and reading and science and math. Uh, and this enraged students like myself. I think for so many of us, the only reason we came to school was because of these electives that at least gave us community. And they were just going to cut all of them or make students have to pay to participate in these things that should be free for everyone. Uh, so we started to rally. I was, was going to say, so, so did you organize a protest? We did. And we liter <laughs> very literally did. And yeah. um, we were very lucky that uh, the local community college kids, too, were just as yeah. angry. And we were able to join those protests. And we made all these signs in the art classroom saying, like, don't cut our, you know, don't cut our education. And these cuts don't heal. And uh, do you want me to, like, not get a job? <laughs> you know, like, things <laughs> that were just whatever was on people's minds. And um, we would hold these rallies at the Capitol. We would go to people's buildings. We'd get signatures. Uh, and then the next year, they didn't cut those programs. And I had never experienced anything like that. I was working with so many different people, many of whom I didn't agree with on a lot of different mm. topics. But we agreed that we did need this funding in our school. And so to see how actually coming together and demanding something concrete led to a real change was really, really empowering for me. And that group didn't do anything else. I'll just say, you know, like it wasn't an organization, uh, but it did something for that one year. And I think that experience, coupled with my own understanding of myself as a Filipino person, coming into an understanding of gender and sexuality, um, that was all very influential for the times in which I got to college. And I got to meet other people who identified as organizers, identified as activists, who were rising up to talk about immigration reform or to talk about queer rights. And I think those people also really saw this energy I had bubbling up, like, I can, I can create change with all these people. And um, I really care about being Filipino. And I'm exploring this new queer identity. And they were able to kind of mesh all of those things together and help me seek out all of these different opportunities to turn my excitement into action. And was that also where you, I mean, it's one thing to be involved in, to be an activist, and mm -hmm. how did your evolution into a leader? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, my first year of college, uh, we, 
a lot of people that, that I was seeing on campus were starting to get uh, summer internships. Mm-hmm. And it was January. <laughs> and coming from the background that I came from, you know, I was just used to working jobs. I, I, doesn't, I didn't come from a, like an internship background where people are always like struggling for success. Most people just get jobs or, you know, most people I grew up around like didn't necessarily go to college either, didn't leave the state. So it was very different for me to leave the state and to be at a uh, institution where most people are getting these internships. And so I remember sitting down with someone and expressing, hey, I really want to be involved in activism, really want to be involved in Asian American activism or LGBTQ activism, but I don't know which one to choose. Can you help me? And he turned to me and he's like, Sammy, um, you don't have to choose. You could do both. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> I don't have to pick one of my identities. Um, I'd never heard that. No one had ever told me that before, to be honest. Uh, and that was when I found A-Pink. And actually, that summer, I became a summer intern for the organization. And that, that, at that time, I, I think I was just transformed in so many different ways through this organization that harnessed all of this excitement about activism, uh, but also an organization that deeply, deeply invested in me as a leader, gave me all of these skills, told me that I should be at the head of the room, uh, told me that I should be bringing my full thoughts and my experiences and what I think should happen next. And people uh, really deeply called me to be involved in so many different things and then asked me to take on more and more leadership over time. And I think it's really through APINC that I was able to get the skills, but more importantly, actually, the community support to feel like um, organizing and activism was a path that I could continue to go down. Let's get into some of the um, hard stuff. Yeah. And I say the hard stuff because I think, you know, as a community, we're having a very hard time um, understanding or or having these conversations maybe because they mean something different to many of us. And let's face it, LGBTQ plus everything else and all of our identities that you had mentioned, we're a really complex and diverse mm-hmm. community. And it's interesting that the world is w- waking up in, in mm-hmm. a sense to LGBTQ identity and talk about LGBTQ identity as if it's so uh, linear or singular, mm-hmm. right? And that's not the case of our experiences. And you had just talked about being able to accept your identities. Um, the question that I have is is going down to you know focusing on the issues. Um, we know that yes, we're past the liberation movement. Uh, we got marriage equality, which people seem to think that that's the only thing we care about uh, in in a lot of ways in different you know parts of the world. You. Heading into and working with A Pink, you know, what are let's identify some of the issues first and foremost that the rest of our community faces. Like it's their everyday life, mm-hmm. and 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 you know the media is just not talking about it, or other communities are are not talking about it because they're not facing it at the same rate. Yeah, yeah. There's you know there's so many there's so many issues, and I think. Um, oftentimes when I say that I work at an LGBTQ Asian and Pacific Islander organization, uh, one of the first things, if, especially if people aren't part of the community, they say something like, wow, that's so specific. And I think there's a, there's like an unconscious or conscious bias that why would you focus on such a specific community? What issues could you even possibly have? Like, does it even make sense to focus so specifically if the issues are so broad? Uh, And I think what we found is that it's absolutely necessary to have something so specific, because even within that, 
LGBTQ already is so diverse with so many different generations and experiences. When that's coupled with the gazillions of ethnicities and cultures within the Asian and Pacific Islander umbrella, there's so many different experiences that someone could have. Some of the things that we see as a local organization, uh, some of the things we see include that people are struggling with housing, right? It is no, no mystery that in the Bay Area, gentrification is causing a housing crisis, especially for those who aren't making a ton of money, who aren't in lucrative tech jobs, people who are just struggling in the day-to-day lives in service work or in other industries where they're not getting paid or don't have regular hours, Um, or for people who do have regular jobs that aren't paying a ton, Bay Area housing is forcing a lot of folks either out, out of the Bay Area completely or on the streets. I think we're also seeing just a deep, deep rate of violence against transgender folks, especially transgender uh, women of color. And in that conversation, uh, I think it's really important for our communities, especially API communities, to acknowledge the way that trans API women are are being victimized and being invisibilized. Oftentimes, uh, trans folks' stories are not even represented or told, and so people don't understand the depth at which people are hurting or being harmed or even dying, you know? And so I think the visibility of trans folks of color, trans women of color, trans API women really needs to be elevated because people are experiencing pretty much any issue at an elevated rate. Uh, I think another thing that we're really seeing is uh, mental health being a deep challenge. Culturally, within API communities, uh, the way that people want to talk about their mental health or the stigma around mental health is really deep. And coupled with the shame and silence around being LGBTQ, it becomes really difficult to address the day-to-day needs of our people. You know, in APINC as an organization, I would say the majority of our members are dealing with mental health challenges, whether that's anxiety, depression, um, anything that people are managing on the day-to-day. And we're able to teach each other skills, teach each other coping mechanisms. Um, But when it comes to real, institutional, affordable, culturally competent, and accessible support, there's very little support for LGBTQ API people across all ages and genders and sexualities. So here's the, the, this, the part where it's really difficult to have an ongoing conversation, how we find tools to alleviate some of the, the issues that we're facing, right? Because once we uh, are gaining some of these rights that we're talking about, the privilege of our community may then become complicit in these systems that continue to harm us in this way. And so Mm -hmm. it becomes very hard, right, to see that uh, we collectively are approaching this from finding, uh, I guess the word is solutions. Like it almost feels like it's just this cycle that, okay, we, 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 we start with fighting for the same thing, which is to free ourselves. And then some of us get free, but then we're, we have tech jobs and we're, you know, vacationing and we're doing things. Um, whereas then a good number of us are not, and it becomes very hard for us to, to see, uh, what our future could be if those solutions are, you know, not there and the harm is cyclical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great point. Uh, you know, there's this quote, that I think comes from a lot of black power and black liberation movements. Uh, And the quote is that none of us are free until all of us are free. 
And I think that's a really important and really grounding principle to think about that um, even though some of us are achieving maybe what I want to call like mini freedoms, um, if those are conditional and if they're only sometimes and if they're only based on our um, participation as a productive unit for someone else's benefit, we're not truly free, especially when it's harming or complacent in the harm of other people. Uh, And so the thing that I'm always encouraging our folks to think about is, are we settling for these mini freedoms or are we grounding ourselves in real solutions? And I think ideally real solutions are those owned by a majority of the people. They're democratically governed. They're based in equity for all people that are affected by the issue. Um, And they reprioritize those who are facing Um, the deepest harm in our communities. And until we can find the real solutions that don't um, harm, ostracize, or marginalize more people, we're just claiming many freedoms. And sometimes that's really important just for the day-to-day. You've got to struggle to survive. I get that. Uh, But if we lose sight of everyone else in our community, we're only living lives for ourselves. And that's ultimately not a sustainable way to transform the world. Talk about transforming the world in different ways. There's the outside activists, outside meaning outside of the system activist, and then there are the folks who actually go for political power. Mm -hmm. They run for office or something, or go to work for an agency that is, you know, working on some of these issues. Do you see that as an either-or choice, or do you see that at some point in your life maybe you would want to go and pursue elected office? Yeah, you know, probably not for me. (laughs) Not for me personally. I think I um, sometimes have a low, like, threshold for cognitive dissonance, just to be honest. (laughs) Uh, I respect that, though, and I think I believe deeply in a diversity of tactics and strategies. I think until we achieve these real solutions, we have to try a lot of different things. We haven't won yet. Let's keep trying, you know? Uh, And what I think is maybe most important in doing a diversity of tactics, though, is that we are all grounding ourselves in shared values, and we all have mechanisms to be accountable to the truth of our communities. I think what I see happen very often is that people might go into, whether it is political office or other institutions, with really great intention, but power is is really, really satisfying to some people. And I mean that with no like shame or guilt, but I think that there's a level of complacency that can happen when people realize like, oh, I could just be okay. Um, Mm. And so if there's opportunities for communities to keep people accountable in a really interdependent, conversational and grounded way, I think a diversity of tactics is really important in actually achieving and testing out and experimenting what we need to do to win. I want to talk about dismantling systems because I think that, you know, the younger generation of our movement is calling for the dismantling of some of these oppressive systems such as um, law enforcement, so, you know, and and so I'd love to hear your vision of, like, if you dismantle these things, you know, what, what does society look like for people who think that we need them? Um, and, and this question has been posed before on the program to someone like, uh, Isa Noyola from Transgender, well, now she's with Mihente, but, um, you know, who calls for the uh, uh, abolishing ICE. You know, some people can't even th- think b- about this idea that those systems would not be in place because we need them for security or protection. But maybe we're old. Maybe we, <laughs> we, need, to, we need to be comfortable with change. 
what is it, what is that vision for you? What does it look like? And how could people uh, uh, start opening their mind yeah. to your vision? I, I'm, I'm glad that you're asking. And I just want to say uh, one organization that I really respect, the Center for Story-Based Strategy, they often say this thing, which is uh, people will not go someplace they haven't yet gone in their minds. And a world without prisons, a world without ice is really hard for a lot of people to imagine because our imaginations have been, have been harmed, right? Our imaginations have been limited. And so I think it's so important for every, every person, everyday people to just have the opportunity to imagine, like, what is the best case scenario, right? If we dismantled all prisons and all ice, like, what, what could the best thing be that happens, uh, and I think the call to dismantle prisons and to get rid of police and to get rid of ICE, um, those are not new calls, but there's ways that social media, that maybe like a snowball effect, these ideas are getting more popular because more and more people have been invited into that radical imagination. And I want to invite everyone into imagining that world because I really do deeply believe it's possible. For me, a world without prisons and police means that we have community-based safety systems to care for and to address harm in our communities. Um, I really want to shout out organization, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, because when I think of people who are really concretely building the tools, mm -hmm. um, I think of the BATJC. Uh, they are taking instances of harm and, you know, the harm that I think um, is really extreme. You know, when people go, uh, we can't dismantle prisons. What about um, the people who commit sexual assault? The BATJC is literally going, okay, let's talk to those people. Like, let's change the way that they are functioning in the world. Let's transform, right, the idea behind transformative justice. Let's transform the way that they're approaching society. Let's transform the way that the survivor is able to thrive in this world so that this never has to happen again whether that's tools of creating real accountability, of building good apologies, of transforming systems, structures, family values of home and belonging. Um, I think that there's ways that our communities can be more well-versed in what do we do when someone causes harm? Mm -hmm. How do we hold them accountable? How do we support survivors? Um, and how do we move to a place of reconciliation, um, transforming the harm and moving so that it doesn't have to happen again. And I think all of our communities can get skilled up in really practical skills as we are dismantling systems so that something better, communities that are more well-equipped can take that place. Now, see, that's where I think it goes back to John's question about um, seeking uh, leadership, especially, you know, politically, because you need that type of power to make something you know, this kind of structural change, mm -hmm. right? Like, because a lot of what's wrong with the criminal justice system or the, the legislation, the policies that have been written. So it's almost like the system isn't necessarily calling attention to one institution. It's all connected as you had, you know, going up there to the power chain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah, we can, we can, we can use social media. We can use, uh, protest tactics, which has worked in our movement. How do we get to the very top to make those structural changes to the vision that you see? Because that's a beautiful vision. That's a, and, and in, in my mind, I, I, if we were able to live in that kind of society, I would, I would say I'd die happy, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that, that seems so peaceful. 
how do how do I, I mean as and I'm saying this because we I think we need the unity. I think I think even you know the most conservative of our community need to kind of do a reality check and look at themselves in the mirror and, and hear you talk about this vision and then maybe change the way that they behave, the way that they vote or run for office if if it's someone like you. I think people like you need to climb up the power chain mm-hmm. and then and then change it. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Climb up and then tear it all down <laughs> for sure. Something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think it's hard and I don't have all the answers for things like this. And um, I think it's really important that I don't. Uh, I think it's really important that a lot of people develop their own answer. Once again, grounded in a unity around what our goal is, mm-hmm. but still open to that diversity of tactics. Uh, I think, you know, the thing that I focus my livelihood on is um, connecting young people with the tools to empower themselves to create change uh, and connecting people across generations so that we can all get on the same page as to what this means. Uh, There's ways that some of those people in conservative institutions or at the top of the power chain, just to be honest, they're probably never going to listen to someone like me. Uh, But they might listen to someone else who looks a little bit more like them. So how can I maybe build relationships along the way to influence someone, to talk to someone, to be in dialogue with another person so that our entire world does not have to function so much out of fear of what could happen to them or to their families, and more so out of abundance of belief that we will have the systems and structures in place to do good things in a right way that serves justice for all of the people, not just the ones that are afraid Mm -hmm. uh, and have power. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't have like a very clear answer for how this gets to the top, but I believe that if people on the everyday are empowered with the tools to make this happen, um, somehow I think the job of so many of us as cultural workers and organizers is to make the more revolutionary option more attractive than the punitive system that's in place right now because it functions so well, because it's fun, because there is joy and community and hard work and satisfaction. Rather than the punitive system, um, the systems rooted in fear, the systems rooted in punishment uh, that at the end of the day, to be honest, don't really make people happy even if they've won, you know, like uh, survivors who see their abuser locked up um, Sometimes those people might feel happy for a second or might feel safe for a second, um, and that's totally fair. And um, the state is not supporting their healing. That same punitive system isn't going, great, like, what do you need now to heal? Like, are you okay? Whatever. They're like, great, leave, bye. Mm -hmm. Um, And hopefully we are creating communities that are way more attractive uh, for people to actually build momentum and participate and gain the skills and be accountable to that method of being. So sorry, I'm hugging this conversation, John. <laughs> I'm really into it. No, um, but but so if I'm hearing you, that was you know dovetails my next question, which is so maybe it's not necessarily you know getting to the top and then tearing it down, but creating the new systems and then hoping that you know others will join the movement in this new creation or this new vision that we're we we all collectively want. And that goes to this next bigger question, which is probably something you want to bring up with your experiences of like San Francisco Pride, right? A near 50-year-old in, uh, organization that our community started f- from a, a, a protest, really, right. right? 
And now it touches millions and millions of people around the world. And it's, it's, run, it's run like a business. Um, so the mission, the purpose maybe has changed, although its impact, I mean, this is something maybe 50 years ago, or, or I would say maybe 20 years ago, we said we wanted. We wanted to change hearts and minds. We wanted social acceptance. And we want to be a part of, you know, the mainstream and, and what the society is, the system is. Uh, we got there. Uh, LGBTQ people are now police officers versus being beaten by you know, the, the police. Um, uh, we're now out CEOs instead of closeted ones or uh, being fired by you know, the same companies that we were boycotting, et cetera, et cetera. And so if the goal is for us to really prior- reprioritize these voices and we need the unity, we need the numbers, we need people to support this vision of you know, healing and, and not buy into or be complicit in these systems that continue to oppress us. Uh, how are we supposed to do that within our own community? I mean, it just feels like we were living in such a, a contradiction right now. Like, it, I feel so, I feel, I'll be honest with you, my personal feelings, like, I'm so torn. Like, I want to be like, yay, this is advancement. No, but it's not. <laughs> Um, and I don't know what to do. I don't know. I don't know how to. Uh, should should we fight ourselves on it, or do we do do we smash what we've created and then start all over and create something that is much more just? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's many ways to go about it. My personal inclination is that uh, so much of history has been lost in people's day to day action. I think if people are grounded in our history, there are very few ways that people can move forward um, thinking that, like, you know, they can be the CEO of a company um, and be abusing the lowest level of workers. But they're like, it's cool, though, I'm gay. Mm. Uh, I think if we don't look at the historical implications, the historical patterns, the ways that queer and trans people have risen up throughout decades and centuries and be okay with those types of actions of abusing the lowest levels of workers at a company. Uh, I think that people on the day-to-day, if we had more groundedness in our history, we would be able to fight or at least act in a way more just and in more alignment with the historical value. And I'm not, you know, I'm also not ignorant. That's not going to work for every single person. Uh, But I think that it's once again that thing of, are we fighting for personal, like kind of mini freedoms? Mm. Or are we taking a broad picture view and looking at what is everyone in my community experiencing, even if I don't agree with them? Um, Even if that's not my personal experience, am I listening? Am I listening to the people who are not in the room? Am I listening to the people who are angry at me? Am I listening to the people who I disagree with? Um, Am I removing my ego from the situation and saying like, wow, what is the lived experience of that person? And I think taking into account the historical implications and the contemporary experiences of people, uh, you know, to me, it really doesn't matter if there's LGBT police officers because police officers of every gender and sexuality are still brutalizing people every single day. Uh, And that's really, that's really unfortunate. Uh, And it's really sad to see. And 
Um, you know, I'm not like a total curmudgeon either. <laughs> like there's so much to celebrate. Don't get me wrong. There's like so much that we as a community can celebrate. If there's anything queer people, trans people are good at, it's celebrating. We like throw the best parties. We have the best fashion. The rest of the world is jealous of the ways we can be so authentically and truly in our power. I agree. Uh, and so why don't we have that be the center of how we create social change, you know? Like, let's focus in on what we're really good at, but never forget that um, the celebration has a purpose, the celebration has a meaning. Uh, I think we could even see, you know, historically back in the 60s, the 50s, um, how certain homophile organizations um, started to pop up, right? And homophile organizations, they were really excited about the idea of assimilation into society, uh, while other groups that started to pop up, like at Compton's Cafeteria, those people wanted safety. Like, they just didn't want to be beaten by the police every other week. Uh, and so that was such a critical moment in the LGBT movement right here in San Francisco for people to say, well, what path are we going to go down? Uh, and it's only coming to light nowadays. Even so many of the people who participated in it weren't able to tell their stories of Compton's. And that's getting more popular as a historical event to recognize, to reclaim, to acknowledge. Uh, and I think we're at kind of a similar crossroads now, right? Are we going to be advocating for acceptance and assimilation into larger society? Or are we going to look at the people who are still struggling on the day-to-day, -day, center their voices and say, before I assimilate, before I um, am normalized into larger society, I will fight for your safety. I will fight to make sure that you don't have to get beaten up every week, that you are not criminalized, arrested, oppressed. That is my priority before my own normalization into the larger society. I'll have to be honest. I mean, it, the last 40 minutes, has it's been transformative. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I'm going to open it up to the audience if you would like to ask a question. Anybody want to ask Sammy a question? Okay, we'll go back to John. I was pleased that you talked about the the all the different views that are available are, are expressed and are felt within really every community. Um, kind of going back to when you were talking about having a, at least a unifying goal, though. How important is that? Because my argument would be, you will never ever have a unifying goal over a very large group of people. And we're in a country, and we talk about different identities. You have we're also members of different communities, mm -hmm. including just on the kind of governmental level. San Francisco, Bay Area, California, United States. And we might talk about large parts of the United States that voted for Donald Trump. We can also talk about huge parts of California that voted for Donald Trump. And not to write them all off, as, I mean, there are different reasons. There are lots of different people throughout that, those regions. But still, um, how much of your hope to achieve your higher goals, you know, to transformative goals, um, are relying on changing everyone's view or, you know, 60% of the people's view mm -hmm. to buy into, as you were saying, a kind of a really golden vision of what life could be like. Yeah. Uh, I don't think true unity is possible, I will say. And um, I think that's great. <laughs> uh, I think it would be silly to say everyone should think exactly the same. I actually don't even want to live in that world. That sounds boring to me. I think it's important that we have a diversity of opinions, and those diversity of opinions should not sacrifice someone's humanity. 
So it's great to have a full diversity of tactics, like I mentioned, or um, views on how to govern something. But if um, someone's humanity and someone's safety is the cost of that, that's what I want to get rid of. Uh, and so I think that there's ways that we can build different types of unity. Maybe it's you and your own community, your specific like friend group even, right? Friend groups are sometimes people's close and only community. Um, how are you getting on the same page with your friends about different political issues and topics? Or at least how are you starting those conversations? How can then our organizations, institutions, get on the same page and have those hard dialogues? Organizations partnering with other organizations to form coalitions, to form local political power. Um, and there's going to be some things lost or changed along the way. But having those conversations, I think, is a really critical step. Uh, and also being able to say with certainty, um, this is why we're doing it. Not because like, oh, this is how it's always been done or like this is the easiest thing and the most convenient thing, but that everyone feels a sense of shared responsibility for the thing that's moving forward. Uh, one of the other things that that organization I mentioned, the Center for Story-Based Strategy says, um, along with movement generation, they say, uh, if we're not prepared to govern, we're not prepared to win. And I think that being prepared to govern means that everyone in a community and then institution and then coalition and then large political party feels a sense of responsibility over the intention and outcome of that entity. Don't you think, don't you think that still leads at some point to you running for office? <laughs> because otherwise you're, you're talking about continually trying to keep, convince someone yeah. else to do what you want, but that uh, you're, you're actually ceding that position of power that they have to someone who does not have higher goals, does not care about these things the way you do, does not have the drive to do right, but is, instead has a drive to exercise power for sure. whatever other reasons. We're, you're not leaving this room until you uh, <laughs> announce your candidacy. <laughs> it's happening right here. In this well, year. you know, I, to be honest, and this, this might seem ironic coming from me. I know, I know my job title is executive director. <laughs> I'm kind of over individual power. Really? I think it is a recipe for disaster, mm -hmm. even for the most well-meaning, well-intentioned and driven, passionate person. Uh, I think that there's, you know, people want to put all their eggs in one, individual power basket. Uh, and I don't think it works well. I think that even for myself in this role, um, thinking about years from now, a few years from now, when I transition out, I'm kind of like, what other structures would best serve the purpose of this space? Sometimes hierarchy is important as a function, but we also have to be critical of when does this hierarchy actually hold us back? And so um, I'm also very open to the idea that I might be wrong. Uh, and so for me, I want to have conversations with people where I want to be able to express my full humanity, but maybe they have experiences around what governing our community means. Maybe they have experiences around um, what other things might mean. Just as an example, uh, one of our close organizational partners is Asian Prisoner Support Committee, and they work with currently and formerly incarcerated folks at San Quentin, um, all Asian and Pacific Islander. And... Um, doing a group, going in and doing a group for their Roots program, which is like a uh, Asian Pacific Islander ethnic studies and gender studies program, 
Uh, one of the things that we were really inclined to do and say in the program was, let's all go around and do our gender pronouns, right? As an LGBT community, as all people, being very clear about gender pronouns is important, uh, especially for me as someone who uses they, them. Being able to say my gender identity, my gender pronouns out loud uh, enforces other people's assumptions or allows me to be my full self. And, you know, everyone went around and they said their gender pronouns. But what we really learned, we got some pushback. The APSC, Asian Prisoner Support Committee folks, got some pushback. And they said, uh, you know, facilitators can come into this space and ask us for our gender pronouns. But if someone in this group decides that they're going to say their gender pronoun and it's not he, him, because it's, you know, an all-male um, center, um, they are outing themselves. You're essentially forcing someone to out themselves. And you're not going to be here after you leave for when this person has to go back into the facility Interesting, yeah. and um, get kind of ostracized by people because someone heard that they use a different pronoun that is not he, him. You're not going to be able, you're not, you're not going to be the ones protecting that person. And so for us, and for the people at APSC, it was such a learning moment of, wow, maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't make everyone say their gender pronoun at the beginning of a thing. Maybe that's actually harming someone's safety. It might be creating more safety for me, but it's not creating safety for everyone. And I don't know that. As someone who's not currently incarcerated in this facility, they have an answer much closer to the safety of their lived experience. And so for me, being able to learn from that being able to learn from people who are um, living the impacted life at that direct moment um, is important for me as I continue to evolve and change and hopefully share the power that I'm given with as many people as possible throughout my lifetime. And along those same lines, we recently did a program here I, I thought was really interesting, and it was about nonprofit leaders, mm -hmm. so all different kinds, and we had a lot of folks in the audience who ran organizations, uh, again, of all different kinds. Um, and, a, and a common theme that kept coming up was, do, do you connect with your peers at other organizations and other activist groups and other nonprofits and such? And what do you learn? What would you like to know that you think would help you make uh, yourself an even better leader? Yeah, I, I do have the opportunity to connect with other executive directors or um, leaders of like organizations. And that's been a very healing space uh, I came into this role at a very young age, and I didn't anticipate, and I couldn't anticipate all of the challenges that were ahead of me. Uh, and so just being in a space where other people can share experiences has been invaluable. I think the experiences that have actually been most helpful, they aren't the ones that are like, here's how you talk to a funder, or here's how you write a grant. They've been the deeply emotional ones. Mm -hmm. uh, the experiences of, hey, people are going to start personally coming after you. Or there's going to be times in which members of your own community who liked you a month before you had this job will now suddenly have expectations of you that aren't realistic at all. Yeah. Being able to have a space where other leaders can say, here's what to emotionally expect, and here are the this, this tools, the skills, the support systems, to be able to not take that all on yourself. Uh, I think that that's been one of the most helpful things in this role because there's just so much emotionally I could not anticipate coming yeah. into a job like this. We should do a part two on that panel. We should, actually. Sammy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be great. Um, as we wind down, uh, you know, I, again, I want to appreciate all, all that you've given us in this last hour. It truly has been transformative, and it 
for me, you know, at least, and in, in looking at, you know, what leadership actually means. And I think for you and hearing you, leadership is collective and it really isn't um, focused on one person. That's just, you're a beautiful gift for our community, truly. Uh, the last couple of questions I have are very focused on, you know, we, we, we did this whole talk and we focused a lot about LGBTQ unity or non-unity, um, but to, to be whole in our identity as LGBTQ and API, like one of the struggles that I have in identifying it both at the same time is um, not knowing, you know, how to address the homosexual, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the homophobia, transphobia within our community without having the compassion that there just needs to be more education in our community. And, you know, yeah, like our aunties and our moms and our, you know, fathers and, and our uncles might just not get it, but I'm just not at that point where we just write them off because they don't, they don't understand what even transgender means Mm -hmm. or some of, some of the stuff that you're, the concepts that you're talking about, like, or would go over my mom's head as a, you know, uh, she's been here for 40 years as a, a refugee from, from Laos. She would be like, just live your life. Just be happy. What's wrong with you? Stop talking. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just like, you're just too many, there's too many words all at once. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're, you're too focused on the labels and the words, mm-hmm. something like that. And so I would love to hear kind of your thoughts. And I know you talk a lot about, you know, chosen family and loving chosen family, but you represent an API organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when those experiences are tough, how do you keep going? Yeah. I think it's so important that we are constantly in communication with all of our API siblings and aunties and elders and everyone in between. You know, APINK started 15 years ago now when there was a 6,000-person march in the Sunset District here in San Francisco of mostly Chinese older folks who held up all of these signs that said, homosexuality is a sin. Marriage is one man and one woman. And people looked at that and they were like, oh no, (laughs) that looks like my mom or that looks like my auntie, but that doesn't represent me or my community. That doesn't represent my lived experience. And uh, APINC's first campaign was talking to our own API communities about gender and sexuality. And I think that work is just as critical now as it was 15 years ago. Uh, And I don't think we need to have the perfect words to have those conversations. Um, Even when I think about transgender folks, right? Trans people have existed in API cultures and communities for centuries Mm -hmm. under all different names, labels, self-identification, but they've existed outside of the Western gender binary. It wasn't until imperialism and colonization that they were like, actually, only man and woman. Uh, Also, we're going to be violent unless you believe us. And they're like, oh, okay, sorry. Uh, But there's ways that all of our cultures and communities have an understanding. They just might use different words or they might use feelings to express it instead. And so uh, I think having those conversations with all API communities is really critical. And also working with other API social justice organizations to say, just as you're fighting for economic rights or immigrant rights or language access, uh, if you're not addressing LGBTQ people, you're missing a big part of the API community because we have always been in API communities, whether we were using the words LGBTQ or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so without addressing that, you're missing a really necessary pillar 
in a larger function of social change and social justice. Uh, and having those conversations, sometimes my question is, um, you know, when was the first time you saw someone act, act outside of their gender expectation, right? When was the first time you saw someone act outside of a way that people thought that they should because their gender is assigned as a girl or a boy or whatever? We all have instances in our families and communities where people decided to do something that wasn't uh, quote-unquote ladylike or like a man or whatever. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're trans, but we all have experiences of that. And how can we just call attention to make that seen and normal and understood? Because LGBTQ people have been in API communities and we're not going anywhere, frankly. So we just have to have opportunities of compassionate conversation to make that known and heard. Yeah, I would assume also being out and authentic is really important. Uh, I woke my wife up at <laughs> 6.30 this morning because <laughs> there was a spider on the wall and I just couldn't, <laughs> too scared. I was too scared to kill it. And she is from Northeast Thailand, so all that stuff gets thrown into a pan and fried. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they're tasty. I woke her up to go kill it. And I bet if I told that story to my mom, which in her mind, she's beginning to understand that, you know, all that that stuff that she's thrown in as what defines a man and a woman is just mm -hmm. thrown out when she, she sees our experiences. Um, but anyway, it's very therapeutic to yeah. also share. I love to do that when we have API queer people on the show. Cause then yeah. it's like, it's like, okay, this hour, let's do API queer therapy. <laughs> you share, I share. Truly. Um, we're winding down on time. Actually, we're out of time. So audience, I'm sorry you don't get to ask a, a question, but that's okay. Maybe you'll take pictures and photos with Sammy after. Uh, Sammy, uh, thank you so much again yeah, for you your leadership and, for and all that AP, a, a Pink does for our community. And you can, 30 seconds left, if you could give us just some words of encouragement or hope or not, you know, because yeah. it, could, it could be like Isa was like, I'm not giving you hope. You have to go and do something right now. Mm -hmm. um, you could do the same. What are some, of, some last thoughts? Yeah, last thoughts. Uh, I think that everyone has a duty to take responsibility. Uh, take responsibility in your friendship, in your community, in your workplace, in your livelihood, in your family um, to fight for a justice that's, that's for every single person. And I think part of taking responsibility is knowing your history to inform your everyday actions. And more and more, there is the ability to do that, even if it's just starting with a conversation, asking someone about their history. Um, there are fewer and fewer excuses. And so I'm really excited to see the ways that people take agency, ownership, and responsibility over their lives to transform the entire world. Sammy Ablaza-Wills, everyone from A-Pink, thank you so much for joining us here for the Michelle Miao Show. Don't forget, we're here every Thursday afternoon for the most part. Uh, you can check the schedule at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. The second installment of the Equality Series is coming up. We're going to focus on uh, pay equity and, and uh, the gender pay gap or disparities of it, I guess you should say, with some really incredible voices. So make sure you follow that. And then we also have a program on dementia in the LGBTQ community. Uh, thanks so much again. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club. And you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.